The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want to read Luke 2 because you should never go to a Christmas gathering of believers when we don't read this. It's an amazing story. And it's so full of uh, glorious theological truth about who we are and who God is and what he's done in Christ Jesus. So I'm just going to go ahead and read the first, the second chapter of Luke, if you'll turn there. This is the way it goes. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth, that is the entire Roman Empire was from their perspective. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city, that is the city of his fathers. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the same house and family of David. Remember, the Messiah was going to be the son of David, and he is the son of David. He went there in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. This is the eternal Son of God. There's no room for him in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Isn't this an amazing scene that the eternal Son of God, the King of glory, comes, in, comes to the earth and enters into humanity? And these are, this is the setting. <laughs> and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. That's his, that's his announcement. I bring you good news. This is the good news. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born... For you, a Savior who is Christ, that is the Messiah, the anointed one that God sent to do this work of salvation. Christ the Lord, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths. This is the most humble circumstances you can imagine. This baby has been born in an animal shelter, and he's been wrapped in cloths. It's a sign to them when they found him. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into, the, into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph, and the baby as he lay in a manger. That's not a baby bed. This is called, uh, this is humility, isn't it? That the king of glory comes down from heaven and he's born in a manger. 
so that he could enter into our situation, enter into our humanity, so that he could fulfill the promise that God had made in Genesis 3.15, that he was going to change things for a fallen man, and it was going to be through the Lord Jesus Christ. So they came in a hurry and found the way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. By the way, this is the gospel. I hope you notice this. They're, what they're being told is what just took place. The king of glory has entered into, the, into this realm of reality where we are in order to save us. But Mary treasured these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as it had been told them. They believed the report. They actually believed this announcement. And when eight days had passed before the circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, Yeshua. Jesus means Jehovah's salvation. This is God's answer to our need. This is what God has done in order to meet the need that we have. This is how much he cares for us. He sends his son. When the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, to the temple. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens a womb shall be called holy to the Lord, a holy gift from the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That's what poor people gave in response to this gift from God. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit being upon him is implying that the Spirit of God is leading him and empowering him and guiding him. That's what it means to be anointed. The Holy Spirit came upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Wow. The Lord promised him that he wouldn't die before he saw the coming Messiah, and he sees him as a little baby. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, that he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant. This is Simeon. You are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. I hope that, that it's really clear to you as you read the Bible that Christianity is Christ. Jesus is our salvation. And this man knew it. This Simeon knew it. He had seen the Lord's salvation. And he says, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. They were the people who were far away from God. No relationship with him. And the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And the sword will pierce even your own soul because you're going to see what happens to him. She's going to be there at his crucifixion, observing it. And so he says, it's going to pierce even your own soul to the end 
that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It was for a purpose. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel and of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple. Every day she went to the temple because she was expecting to see the Messiah. Serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all these who were looking for the redemption of Israel, of Jerusalem, that God was going to redeem his people. The word redemption is a word for the price to set us a, a slave free. And we were all slaves of sin, and the price to set us free was the very life of Jesus Christ. And that's what he paid. When they had performed everything according to the law of, of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. Galilee is the area, and Nazareth is the city where Jesus grew up. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the, at the feast of Passover. You remember what the Passover was celebrating? It was celebrating the fact that God had supernaturally delivered them from Egyptian bondage as slaves. Now he's going to deliver them from being slaves of sin through the work of his son. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year for this feast of Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. When you turned 12, that was the time for you to be admitted into the fellowship of the Passover as a part of this nation then you began to celebrate Passover with all the adults. And as they were returning, after spending a full number of days there to, to celebrate Passover, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. But, but supposed him to be with the caravan, and went a day's journey, a day's journey. You ever been left at church when you were growing up in church? I was left at church one time, scared me to death. I actually thought they finally had found a way to get away from me and leave me behind. And he was left for all these days. But they supposed him to be at the caravan and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Remember, this is what the story is all about. It's Jesus Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. They're talking to the Lord of glory. They're talking to the the living word, and they're discussing the truth that's revealed in the living word, in the written word. And here he is talking to these teachers and giving them some instruction. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Jesus is getting rebuked by his mama. Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. But then he answers her. Here's his wisdom, and he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them to Nazareth. 
and continued in subjection to them. He actually subjected himself to his mother and father. (laughs) Amazing. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. What a beginning this is. This, this whole thing of the birth of Jesus, somebody asked me this morning about why don't we know the exact date? Because there's a lot of different theories. One of them is October 4th, which is my birthday. That's the one I prefer. <laughs> but we don't know the exact date. But people didn't carry calendars in the first century. They kept, they kept track of the time and the season by the feasts and the celebrations. And many of them weren't even aware that the king of glory had just entered into the earth and into humanity for us. But when you read about his birth, it's amazing all the kinds of expressions that you give, that you're given. For example, when the, in the fullness of time, at the fullness of time he came. That is, when everything was, was ready for him, he came into the world to be our Savior and our Lord. That's why it's good news. You know, what we're talking about is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He called it there, we read in, in uh, Luke 2, verse 10, good news of great joy. Good news that when you hear it, it makes you joyful if you understand it. The New Testament begins with four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all the story of Jesus. They talk about his, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his promise to return and fulfill his work. Because Christmas is a celebration of the first giant step of God fulfilling his big promise. That big promise is found in Genesis 3.15. It was after the fall. And there needed to be a deliverance if we were ever going to experience life with God. And the promise that God made at that time, it's right in the midst of him cursing the serpent, cursing the devil for his temptation of Adam and Eve. And he says, the seed of the woman will crush the head of, the, of Satan. Now, it's probably translated slightly different than that. But this expression that's translated in the New American Standard, he would crush his head, is talking about total and complete defeat. He's going to be absolutely defeated. And the thing is, when Satan is crushed, we are blessed. That's what the Bible consistently says. And so Christmas is a celebration of this first giant step of God's big promise. He promised to deliver us. It's, it's really amazing as Christians, we are called ambassadors of Christ and we're supposed to talk to people about Christ. We're to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. Bring them to a place where they're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But how can we do that? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit's been given to us to empower us to do that very thing. And so we as ambassadors get to pass on this good news, and it's been fulfilled. This good news has been fulfilled. Stop and think about it. Everything that's necessary for your salvation has been accomplished 2,000 years ago. And that's why we are told in First Peter, as you heard it read this morning, the end of all things has drawn near. That expression doesn't mean it's drawing near. It means it has already drawn near. And let me explain to you why he says that. Because it doesn't seem like the last days, or what we would expect of the last days, because it's been 2,000 years, 
And everything seems the same in so many ways. But Peter says the end of all things has already drawn near. What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that everything that needs to be done by the Lord Jesus Christ has been accomplished. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, that now once at the end of the ages, and that, that expression means the high point of the ages, the key to all the nation of the ages, has already drawn near. We are living in the last days, but it's not the last days because Jesus may come tomorrow. It's the last days because Jesus came 2,000 years ago and accomplished all that he was sent to accomplish, which was to die for sinners like us. What, God, what Jesus did was he was committed to obeying the Father no matter what kind of response he got. And he was often questioned about it, even by his own disciples. But he said he was committed to do the will of the Father. And doing the will of the Father would cause him to end up being arrested, beaten, misused, abused, and hung on a cross. And God said that that, that kind of obedience that brought him to that place is why the Hebrews says, or rather uh, Isaiah 53 says, that the father was pleased to crush him. What did that mean? Did he uh, pick up a, a whip and start beating him? No. What, what the father did was he didn't, he didn't uh, deliver him from this danger. He left him in that danger. He allowed him to be beaten and abused and crucified as payment for our sins. It's an amazing truth. And so it's him that we look to and believe on because he is the only one who has ever lived that was able to save us from our sin. You say, wait a minute. I remember a lady told me that when I told her that you had to confess your sins, you had to admit that you were a sinner in need of salvation. She said, I'm not a sinner. I don't sin. That's because she didn't know what a sinner was. A sinner, is, it's real simple. A sin is when you refuse to obey a commandment from God. And all of us have done it. The great sin that plunged the human race into this mess we're in was the sin of Adam and Eve. When they disobeyed God's direct commandment, do not eat of the fruit of this tree. Because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And he did die. He died spiritually and he began to die physically. And all of us are in the situation that we are in in regards to sin and the coming day of judgment is because we are descendants of Adam and our forefather, the first Adam, that is Adam, Eve's husband. The first Adam sinned and all of his descendants went into a condition of being alienated from God separated from God. In fact, if most people are honest with you, non-Christians are honest with you, they would say, I don't need your salvation and I don't want it. I'm doing fine myself. But what the Bible says is it separated us from God, the one who made us for himself. He created us for fellowship with him. He created us for relationship with him. And so he was concerned about your salvation. You know, there was no committee that went to God and said, hey, could you do something about our lostness? Is there something you could do, maybe send your son to come down here and save us? That never happened, did it? In fact, it's what, happened to all, what happened to all of us is one day we discovered 
both inside and outside, that we were far from God and we were in big trouble. Maybe you first heard an account of the coming day of judgment, the great white throne judgment, when everybody's going to be judged based upon what true righteousness is and what their life is. And our, our nature was corrupted. And so we had all kinds of problems. And God said, I'm going to send my son to deliver my people, to save my people, to give them, bring them back into a relationship with me. And so that's what he did. And that's why Christ came. And so what Christ did was he was faithful to the Father to the nth degree. I love that expression in 1 Corinthians. I think it's in 1 Corinthians 13, is it? Or is it John 16? It's one of those. But anyway, uh, it says, Jesus loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. And that expression means he loved them to the utmost. Sometimes it's translated that way. We have a Bible that translates it that way. He loved them to the nth degree. He laid down his life for them. And remember, he's the one who said, no greater love than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. Because God's love for us was of such a nature, we're told in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that he demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, rebels, we were still at war with him. He sent his own son to save us from our sin. Isn't that something? And so this, this celebration of Christmas every year, it's kind of funny because there's a lot of people that see this go by and they say, wow, this is great for the economy. All you people are spending all this money on all these trinkets and everything. This is great for the economy. That's not, so great, that's not what is great about it. What's great about it is it's a celebration of the greatest act of power and deliverance that has ever been accomplished. Jesus went to the cross to die for you in order to bring you back into a right relationship with God. He wants you to experience what he's experienced for eternity. He's had a perfect relationship with his father. And he wants you to have that. And so what happens is when you believe on Christ, you're brought into the family. And you become a member of the family. He becomes the firstborn among many Brethren, that is, the number's growing exponentially. There are more and more people who become brothers to Jesus Christ, who is their Savior. And that where that comes from is God says that the reason he sent his son to save us is because he wanted his son to be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, I have three children and 10 grandchildren. And uh, I wouldn't mind having 10 more children. I didn't want my wife to go through that, but it would have been great to have a larger family, wouldn't it? And here he says that the father says, I want my son to have, I want him to be the firstborn among many brethren. They're innumerable. The number of people who've come to faith in Christ, I don't think you can calculate it. Just those who are alive right now in the world is an amazing figure. And what gets us the most is when somebody comes to faith in Christ, when they actually believe the report that the father gave concerning his son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, obey him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He's given his word and those of us who've believed his word concerning his son We have put our trust in Jesus because the Father says he's able to save you. 
He's able to save you. I know some of you dads think that your boys could probably hit home runs in, the, in a pro baseball. Some of you think you have a son that could play professional basketball and those kind of things. But the rest of us probably don't think so. We think, well, you're dreaming what God wants to do is he wants you to see the glory of his son. He wants you to know who his son really is. One of the things about these accounts of the coming of Christ that amazed me is everything that's said about him is glorious. That he came at just the right time. He was prepared perfectly for this assignment. And he came in order to deliver us. And it's always talking about the timing of it. Once at the end of the ages, in the fullness of time, But now what? This title of this sermon is, So What Do We Do Now? We found out that Jesus came into the world to save us, and we've believed on him. So what do we do now? And what we do now is exactly what you heard read in 1 Peter chapter 4. And uh, we know what happened to him. He came to this world. He was crucified at the high point of the ages, Hebrews 9.26. And then he ascended back to the Father. You wonder, where is Jesus now? Well, where is he? If you believe in Jesus, show me where he's at. Oh, I can tell you where he's at. He's at the right hand of the Father where he has been told he should sit there until the Father has made his enemies his footstool. Until he's finished this part of the plan. So he appeared at the fullness of time. And at the end of all things, he has drawn near. The end of all things has drawn near, according to 1 Peter 4, 7. You just heard read. And then he tells them they should be doing four things. This is to you, because you're followers of Jesus. You're supposed to be doing four things. Now that you've come to realize that Christ has come and done everything he was supposed to do, what would have to happen in order for you to be saved? Jesus would have to die for your sins. Guess what? That's what he's done. And so then he sends back to the Father. He sits down at the right hand of God. And then he pours out the the Spirit on all believers. He pours out the Spirit on all believers. So every believer has the Holy Spirit. Now, Now I want you to turn back to 1 Peter, if you would, just a second. Here is a very short passage, short sermon, short passage, uh, and where Peter tells us in these Four simple things that we ought to be doing continually as followers of Jesus. And here's what they are. If you'll turn to first, first Peter chapter 4, verse 7. This is what Peter says. Remember who Peter is. Peter is, is one of the right-hand disciples of Jesus. Some have called him the, the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth because he was always saying something that seemed out of place. But Peter had a deep and profound faith in Jesus Christ. I got tickled at this, this very book, First Peter, because Peter says to these people he's writing to, he says to them, even though you haven't seen him, you love him. Well, stop a minute. Who saw him? G- uh, Peter saw him. Peter lived with him for three and a half years. But these people had not lived with him. They had never seen him with their physical eyes. And so he says to them that even though they haven't seen him, they love him. And they're not, though they're not seeing him now, but believing in him, they rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You know, it's one thing to get to know somebody and think, ah, that guy's, that's going to be handy to know that guy. I've got to put his little card right here in case I have a problem in this area. I can give him a call. 
But that's not a friend. That's a tool in your hands. And he says, but what happened to these people? They didn't see Jesus, but they loved him. Why did they love him? Because they found out who he was. Peter told him who he was. And so they loved him. So he says, even though you don't, you don't see him, you love him. And though you're not, you've never seen him. And though you're not seeing him right now, you rejoice with joy and full of glory. What does he mean? You mean you're happy about knowing Jesus and you've never laid eyes on him. You have never seen his physical appearance. And those, those pictures you've seen in movies and plays, he doesn't look like that. The way we're told he looks like is when he was beaten, he didn't even look like a man. They couldn't recognize him as a man because he was so distorted from his beating. And they had never seen him. But they loved him. And even though they weren't seeing him now, just believing in him, that's all, just trusting him. He said, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That means you're really happy in Jesus. So turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Listen to these things. He says, the end of all things has already drawn near. This is very emphatic. It's called a perfect tense. and I know none of you care about that, but it just means that it's happened in the past and it remains done. It's never going to be undone. The end of all things is drawn near. He's already completed everything necessary for you to have eternal life. All you have to do is receive it by faith. So he says, the end of all things is drawn near, near therefore. And now he's going to tell them four things they need to be doing. I'm going to add one, but that's implication here. But he tells them, first of all, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. That means be in the right mind. You know what that is. That's what your wife's always telling you about how you ought to be. Be a sound judgment and sober spirit. Have your mind uh, focused like it should be. Why? So you can pray together. See what it says? Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayers. The reason it's in a plural tense, this is the implication of it. For prayer meetings, getting together with fellow believers and praying together. I've had a wonderful surprise over the last few weeks. I, uh, when we started talking about praying in our small groups, I started sending texts to uh, Bill Atkins and uh, asking him how Buddy was doing. They have a little, a little, he's not little anymore. He's about 20 years old, but he has muscular dystrophy. And so I started writing him texts, and I said, how is Buddy doing? We want to start praying for him in our house fellowship. So he starts a whole flow of, of emails to me and texts to tell me how Buddy was doing. And he was so happy somebody was praying for him. And I, I mean, really, I released, I, I released a guy that I'd, like, I'd never seen him before. He's continually telling me what God's doing for Buddy and what he needs, what he needs God to do now. And I love that fellowship. And see, that's what he's talking about. The end is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit, for the purpose of prayer meetings, getting together with fellow believers and praying. So that's the first thing you've got to be continually doing. These are all present participles, which mean this is to be the characteristic of our life. First of all, be praying together. When was the last time you prayed with a group of believers? That's what we need to be doing. We need to be gathering together to pray. And then he says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. 
I love this because love covers a multitude of sins. This almost sounds like he thinks we're going to commit a lot of sins, doesn't it? And so he says, that's, that's the first thing. Be fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, all he means by that is, you know, sometimes you, don't, you just don't like a person. You don't like their personality. You don't like the way they carry themselves or whatever. And so you just kind of keep your distance. You always watch out not to get too close to them. You don't want to get in a conversation. But here he says, if you love a brother or sister fervently, you'll be able to overlook a multitude of sins. I think it's, uh, it's kind of humorous to listen. It's if you ever hear a conversation like this, somebody saying why they don't like to be around this person. Well, guess what? Loving someone fervently from the heart because Jesus loves them fervently from the heart and he's put them in your life will cause you to be able to overlook those things. I mean, not allow them. Have you ever noticed how parents can put up with stuff with their kids? My parents did. You know that was. And uh, I did. You better believe it. <laughs> uh, it's because of your love for them, isn't it? It's because of who they are to you. If you get right with God and get right with your brother and sister in Christ and they become what they ought to be to you, you'll discover that you're not driven away by petty sins. And they are petty. Then he says, be hospitable. Hospitable. That, that word means the love of strangers. It means you being able to share what you have with others. So he says, be hospitable. This is what Christians are supposed to be doing. This is, the way, this is our life because of what Christ has done. So that we are to be hospitable to one another, share what we have, but I love this, listen to this clause, without complaint. That, is, that word is, is a onoponymic, well, I don't know how to say that word. You know, it's one of those words that's based on a sound. You know, what, you, know what the complaint, you know what the complaining sounds like here? It's a word that means the cooing of doves. Just a constant groaning, you know, you're hearing it all the time. You ever have that when you wake up in the middle of the night, you can't figure out what the noise is? Is that, is that an animal outside or what is that? Well, he says, we're to love each other fervently and we're supposed to be hospitable to each other without complaint. I was talking with a guy the other day. We haven't seen each other in many years. He's moved far away, but he was, he was courting a girl and they were both in our Bible study way back in the, whatever that was, I can't remember. It must have been the late 80s. And uh, they would stay almost until the sun came up. It was amazing. I, just, I was so tired. I just, all I wanted to do was go sit in your car and talk, you know? But they felt perfectly comfortable because we showed them hospitality, because we loved them. Sometimes got tired of them laying on our, he would, he would fall asleep on our couch as we're having a conversation. It's tough, isn't it, talking to somebody that falls asleep? You hear that, everybody? <laughs> and then he says, and this is the kicker, as each one, every single one, has received a gift or a special gift, employ it, employ that gift that you have received from, the, from God through the Holy Spirit 
employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, what a steward was, I've told you a hundred times, so I'm, I know I'm repeating myself, but it's not because I can't remember saying it. I just want you to know again. A steward was the guy in the household who was given the responsibility that when the owner of the household bought the supplies, the steward gave them to the people in the household. You get what he's saying? He wants you to use the gift you've been given by God to serve his people by dispensing his grace into their lives. And, and I love the way he says it. He calls it manifold grace. That just means it's multicolored. It comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. And what God wants you to do is to use your gift to dispense his grace into the lives of his people. And uh, I, don't, I, I would like to tell you this. If you're seeking a gift, stop it. Because he's already given you a gift. Now, you may not know what it is, but probably other people do. But what he's talking about is the gift that you did receive. And now he's going to tell us this. This is, this is Peter over Paul. Paul gave you a list of 20 different spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians and Romans 12. Peter says there's two kinds of gifts. But he's talking about categories. And he says there's one category called speaking, where God empowers you to speak truth into people's lives. And the other kind of gift is serving. He gives you some eyes to see needs in people's lives. My wife has one of those kind of gifts. And uh, I've, I've always been amazed by it. I really, it makes me feel really guilty because I just don't feel, she's got such a motivation to help people. It's absolutely crazy. And I think, you know, I wish you'd just focus on me. I got a lot of needs myself. <laughs> and I've, as we've all, we've, all, uh, we've all discovered, there are a lot of needy people out there that don't deserve any help. Oh, I'm sorry, let me say that again. All those people out there who are needy don't deserve help. God deserves to give it, and he wants to give it through you. So he says that you should be a good steward of the manifold grace of God. And your eyes will open, and you will see that a person needs either to be served in some way, or they need to be informed about the truth of the word of God and how it's applied to your life. I don't mean you need to take Greek. You don't have to take Greek. You don't have to take Hebrew. You don't even have to like it. You just need to have God's word in your heart like the Apostle Paul did when he preached to the Thessalonians. I've prayed for this recently a lot. I've, I've told God, I want this in my life. This is what Paul said. He said, the gospel didn't come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with much full conviction. Just as you know the kind of men we become while we were with you for your sake. Now, that's, that's an amazing statement because what it's saying is the thing that convinced them of the gospel is they heard Paul preaching it, but what convinced them that it was he really believed it, it was really true, was because of the kind of person he became while he was with them. The gospel was transforming him. If somebody ever preaches the gospel to you, and they say, it's not changing me at all. They're, they're not. They've, they've never believed the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ will absolutely transform your life. It will open your eyes to the most glorious activity for every believer, and that is 
become an instrument in the hands of God to meet the needs of his people. He wants to use you. So what are we supposed to be doing? These four things. First of all, well, the first before we do these other things, we need to come to become convinced that the end of all things has already drawn near. That just means that Jesus has come. He's done his work. Now you don't have to cause something new to happen. I know this happens to a lot of circles where uh, you think the way people are going to get saved is when you do something supernatural. That's not what Paul was talking about. He was talking about what was happening to him as he preached the gospel. It was overwhelming to him, this truth, that Jesus had come and died for him. And that's what he wants to happen to you. He doesn't want you to come up with some magical way to transform people. He already has a way. He doesn't need you to sanctify people. He knows how to do it. And he, everything that needs to be done has been done in order for that to happen. What you're supposed to do is pray for people because you have this special office. It's called being an ambassador of Jesus Christ. So you're supposed to represent him to everybody you talk to. You're supposed to actually care about people and love people that you're talking to, even though they may be the kind of person that you would never want to have a friendship with. They could be your brother or your sister. You could discover that God's going to put somebody in your life that you would normally never choose them as a friend, but they will become an object of God's grace through you into their life. I want to tell you, it's kind of like parents loving their children, and other people are just clucking their tongue and say, I don't see how they put up with that. I'd never put up with that. Oh, yes, you would. Believe me. But what he is telling us to do is is if we love people the way God has commanded us to, we'll start loving them like these people love their children. You can look past and through what the, the, the flaws in people's lives, and you can begin to pray and intercede to God for help knowing how to help this person, how to minister to them, how to dispense God's grace into their life. I just hope you realize this. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Jesus came, and we celebrate Christmas because he came, and he did this perfect work. Now this is what we're supposed to be doing. And you need to write these things down in your little notebook and carry it around and memorize those four things. The thing I added was, you have to be convinced that the end of all things has already drawn near. Is it too early to share Christ with people? No. No, it's not. It's not too early. You can do it now. You can do it this month, this year. You can be, you can be a, an instrument in God's hands in communicating the truth of the gospel. That's what I pray for that we would be a church that loved people. I was, talking, I was had a conversation the other day with a guy, and he was telling me about some people that left one church to go to another, and I would know both these churches. They're both really good guys. And he said the reason was the first guy doesn't know how to love people. He doesn't know how to show them that he loves them. And so they started going to this other church where this guy is an old hand at it. He knows how to show people, demonstrate to people that he loves them because of what Christ has done. I met this guy in college. He changed my life. God used him to change my life because he actually acted like he loved me. I just couldn't figure it out. It was the gospel. So all of us need to commit ourselves to these things. We need to be doing these things. We need to be being sober and alert for the purpose of prayer. We need to be loving one another above all things, loving one another because love covers a multitude of sins. We need to be hospitable. 
Have people in your home. Don't worry about the fact that you don't have filet mignon. They'll eat cereal. Have you ever eaten uh, Cheerios in the afternoon or night? Sure. There's nothing wrong with that. It works. So we need, to, we need to be hospitable without complaint. And then we need to use our spiritual gift. You don't need to get a gift. You need to use it. You have one. And it's either a speaking gift or a serving gift, and you have it. And now he's asking you to use this gift. And he, and he tells them how we're to use it. When we speak, we're to speak as a worthy oracles of God. And we're to, when we serve, get this, he says, when you, when you serve, you are to serve as those who are being choreographed by God. That is, he's, he's the one who's controlling the service of his people. And so he's going to bring people right in your path, right in your life, that he wants you to dispense his grace into their lives. That may be nothing more than taking the time to demonstrate that you love this person, you care about them, and you, and you really would desire them to come to be in the family of God and to enjoy what it's like to be loved by God's people. So I'm going to pray that for you. I'm going to pray for you in that way. So let's bow our heads and I'll let you go. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for the amazing, amazing plan that you have, that you saved us. We didn't save you. We didn't have to come up with some proposal that we could do in order for us to become Christians. We simply had to hear you, believe you, and trust you. And so I pray, oh God, that you would activate us, make us aware that you've placed us in a life that you want us serving. You want us demonstrating to this world that Jesus Christ is glorious and he, he, that he loves people, that he receives people simply by believing in him, trusting him, as believing the word of God, what God has said about him, and experiencing his salvation. I pray that you would do that. And I pray all of us would experience this glorious experience of being involved in someone coming to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and being saved and forgiven and made new. Please do that in our lives, Father. We desperately need you. We are bankrupt without you. And yet you have filled our lives with riches, spiritual riches that we can't even enumerate. We thank you for that. I pray you'd bless us. Bless this congregation. Father, uh, help us to love people. Help us to obey these commandments. Let this be the very way that we live our lives, as Peter puts it. These four things always going on in our lives, Father. I pray you'd teach us how when we, when we get together, we can say, hey, why don't we pray? I just heard a couple of things I want you to pray about. And we gather and lift up our voices in praise and adoration and worship and request because we trust you and we trust your son. Thank you so much for this little flock that Jesus has put together. We pray you would bless them. Bless them richly, Father. You, you continue to bless us and we pray that we'd be aware of it. And we give praise to you for it, Father, in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.